get started. It's good to see you all this morning. So we're in the season of Epiphany, where we tell these great stories about the life of Christ, and we ask, how did they figure out he wasn't just some normal dude? Um, what is being revealed in this story about, about God, about humanity, and how should we respond? So that's Epiphany. And our story for today we read earlier um, is from the Gospel of Mark, which begins... Um, before this, in this chapter one, before our story for today, begins with John the Baptist, you know, who had this powerful prophetic ministry at the time of Christ. Remember, John um, was Jesus's second cousin. When Mary was, was pregnant with Christ, she went to visit her aunt Elizabeth, remember, who was also pregnant, and the, the baby leaps within Elizabeth's womb. This is John the Baptist. And he grew up to be a powerful Jewish prophet and figure in his time. But instead of um, living in Jerusalem near the king, um, like most prophets, John located his ministry out in the wilderness. That's the setting for the Gospel of Mark and for John's activity. It's also where Jesus went to be baptized and tempted in the wilderness. So Mark begins in the wilderness. That's the setting. And of course, in any story, the setting has deep symbolic importance. Like, um, if you think of speeches that were given in particular settings, like I always think of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It's very short. It, it's like a two-minute speech. The real power of the speech is in the setting where it takes place. Or uh, remember um, when George W. Bush stood with that bullhorn on the pile of rubble at, at, um, the, in 9-11, just after 9-11. Remember that speech? I don't love the speech, but the setting was the power of the speech. So the setting of the story communicates something about its meaning. And the wilderness setting communicates actually an important critique. It's as if to say, you know, Jerusalem has become so corrupt that if God wants to get anything done, it'll have to begin as far from Jerusalem as, as possible. So there's this symbolic tension in Mark between Jerusalem, which is the seat of Jewish religious power and Roman political power, and the wilderness, the place where God so often shows up to do miraculous things. There's this tension in the setting in the Gospel of Mark. And, and we sort of then expect that if Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, um, that his messianic action won't be rooted in, in Rome or in Jerusalem, but it'll come from the periphery, not from the center. And in fact, Mark's Jesus appears at the margins, um, exposing this tension in kind of the socio-political religious world of Christ between those at the center, the rich, the powerful, the elite, the political and ruling class, and those on the periphery, the poor, the powerless, just, or just, you know, the ordinary, everyday people, and the marginalized. And this is all over the scriptures, this tension is, between the powerful at the center and, and the kind of ordinary, common things at the periphery and on the margins. John the Baptist and Jesus appear at the margins of society. That's the setting. They start in the wilderness. And this is a, a scriptural paradigm. that change most often comes not from the centers of power and the elite, but from the periphery and the margins and common, ordinary people, places, and things, and classes. They're the ones who change the world. So there's this, this tension in, in our text for today, and it begins with this detail. After John was arrested, 
Jesus came to Galilee announcing the good news of God. So John is John the Baptist, and he has been arrested now. So he, he had been, um, after Herod died, Herod the Great died, there, um, he got replaced by his sons, which all, all were named Herod. It's like George Foreman, who like named all his kids George Foreman. So they were all different Herods. This is Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee and Perea. So that was like the, the region of Galilee and then the region of the wilderness where John and, and Jesus had been. Those were his two regions. And um, John was hard on this guy, man. He, he would critique him just like brutally. And at one point, Herod Antipas, actually it was a scandal. He um, had an affair with one of the, his brother, one of the other Herod's wife. He, he had an affair with her and then ended up, ends up marrying her. And John the Baptist just savaged him. And this critique gained traction. And so John had him, had him or um, Herod had John arrested. And um, that's what triggers Jesus' action. He decides, I'm going to get out of here. And he goes um, up to Judea, or, up, or leaves Judea and goes up to Galilee. So he moves from the wilderness, the periphery, to Galilee, which is also the periphery. This is the new setting and the setting for most of his ministry. And just like the wilderness was, was a, a, um, a contrast to Jerusalem, Galilee is a contrast to Judea, um, the, the seat of power where Jerusalem was located. So once again, there's this tension between the periphery and the center of things. And Mark's Jesus keeps just appearing or choosing the margins. His ministry will be among these common folks, ordinary things, among the poor, the working class, not among the elites, the rich and powerful political ruling class. But, but here's the thing. Jesus won't just remain on the periphery, like the Essenes we talked about a, a couple weeks ago. They were the Jewish sect that moved out into the wilderness that had a little commune in the wilderness. He, he doesn't do that. Jesus begins on the periphery, but he doesn't remain there. He will go back to the center at different times, he'll, at key moments in his life, and especially at the end of his life, he'll go to the center and challenge the legitimacy of those powerful elites, the ruling class, who will ultimately then have him killed. So that's the story that Mark is telling here. It's, it's about not escape from the world, not even escape from the world and going to heaven when you die. It's about engagement with the world, not flight from it. But it's an engagement that's rooted in the margins, in the periphery. And this just kind of highlights the tension between the, the rich and powerful at the center and the common and ordinary at the edges. In those days, there were four really main regions um, in the part of the ancient world where Jesus was living and working. Each region had its own story and history and symbolic meaning. There was Idumea. We talked about this. This is where Herod the Great was from. It's mostly Arab people who had been conquered by the Jewish people, by Israel, and converted to Judaism. Um, there was Judea, as in where the Jews live. It's named after them. So it's the capital city. Jerusalem is there. This is where the Jews worshipped um, for centuries. Then there was Samaria. Samaria uh, was the, it's the remnants of the old northern kingdom of Israel. And so these were marginalized Jews who had a serious beef with the Jews living in Judea. And then above that, farther up even, was Galilee, way up north by the Sea of Galilee. And, and this region was almost like an afterthought. It's where Jesus grew up, 
and it was this center of agriculture and trade. And this is where it's, it's like the sticks, you know, and this is where Jesus goes to, to do his ministry. It's like Western Kansas. Like, who wants to go to Western Kansas? He goes to Western Kansas. That's where he goes. And there, there are a couple other, you can see there's the Decapolis, it's like um, the 10 cities, and then Perea, that's the wilderness, that's where they've been, the Jordan River is right there, that's where John was and Jesus was. Galilee, though, it's, it's way up north on something called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, it's this, it's this road, a trade route that circles the Mediterranean, that dates like clear back to the Bronze Age, um, and connects the Roman Empire with the East. And so Galilean Jews lived on this road. So they were exposed to like Persian influence and culture, philosophy of the East, through all this trade. Plus it's like a mostly Gentile region with a ton of Roman influence. So it wasn't easy to be a Jew in Galilee. It took some commitment because they were like looked down upon and persecuted. And so the people who lived up there, they were devoutly Jewish perhaps even more so than down in Jerusalem. They, they definitely thought they were better Jews than the folks down in Jerusalem. And culturally, they were very different from Jerusalem Jews. In fact, Galilee was notorious for um, rebellions. There's this one famous rebellion led by Judas the Galilean. He led a revolt in um, 6 BC, so just after the time of Christ's birth. And um, so anybody from Galilee was just a little bit suspect, you know, especially down in Jerusalem. These hicks from up north are always starting trouble, you know. And it, it really was kind of the seedbed of rebellions, and, and the people there were, like, they were overly zealous about their, their Jewish faith. And on the edge of the Sea of Galilee was this little region that's sometimes called the Triangle. It was made up of these three little towns. There's um, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, or, or Julius was the, the Roman name. And it's these small, little, almost exclusively Jewish communities. There were like four or 500 people in each one, maybe 10, 15 big families living all right on top of each other, cooking and eating and socializing in these open courtyards and often sharing space with extended family and even neighbors. And so Jews living up here in the Triangle had these really strong social bonds they were passionate about God and the Torah, and they were serious about their Jewish identity. You could even study with some of the most famous rabbis clear up there in, in Galilee, far from Jerusalem. And our story for today takes um, place in Bethsaida, one of those little towns. It's, it's, Bethsaida means fishing town. And you, you look at this, you, you, it would have looked something like that. It's right, you can't see too well, but beyond that is the sea and then the sky. And you can almost just sort of imagine this little town and these four little boys with dark eyes and dark hair and dark skin running around this little village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And if you were there at the right time in like 10 AD and caught the right boys and asked them their names, they would say their names are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Four of the disciples grew up in this one little town. And Jesus came here to pick his disciples, his inner circle. And in fact, these, these are the main guys, the three main guys, Peter, James, and John. You always kind of feel a little bad for Andrew, but these, the three main guys were from this town. Like Andrew must have not been too, so smart or something. I don't know. But 
these are the three guys. They had like special teachings. They're the ones who saw the transfiguration, for instance. The special, they were insiders. And um, they would end up leading the Jesus community, in fact, after Jesus died. And all four of these guys, they were devout Jews from Bethsaida. That's where they think the ruins are. So right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, in Galilee. And all four were fishermen from fishing town, right? And they were living in a time when the economy of Galilee had become this massive Roman grift. Galilee was essentially an an agricultural cash cow for the Roman Empire. And the fishing industry in particular was a huge part of this. It was was incredibly unjust. They had these, these toll booths set up and these tax collector guys set up on the Via Maris, that trade route. And they'd go out on the road rummaging through all the trade caravans because taxes were so high, people smuggled all the time. So they're rummaging through these trade caravans, putting their hands on who knows what kind of unclean things. And then they'd come to your house or your place of business and get their cooties all over your stuff, making you ritually unclean, which was really bad because they're serious Jews, right? Shaking you down for your earnings. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they lived this life. They were commercial fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And the sea belonged to the people, but the fish in the sea belonged to Rome. And to catch and sell Rome's fish, you had to buy a lease from King Herod. And of course, who sold the leases? The tax collectors. And they were so expensive that the margins for these fishermen were really tight. And that the, the raw materials that they needed, so wood for the boats, flax for their nets, that kind of, those things were heavily taxed. And then transportation and dr- distribution, that all had to go past a toll booth, right? So those, there's more taxes, more tolls. The whole thing was completely exploitative. And, and, and the fishermen and the tax collectors kind of played a game of cat and mouse, you know? Smuggling was a huge deal. I got, went down a rabbit hole of that this week. It was really funny. They were creative. Um, and, and this is just kind of scratching the surface of the economic injustice of Galilee. But the fishermen were at the center of it. And you know, the, the um, Roman Empire loved to tout the, the po- Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. But Rome was really, like the city was very wealthy and, and peaceful for the most part because on the edges of the empire, the periphery, there was constant war and violence and economic exploitation that was then sent back to Rome so they could live in peace and wealth. And, and Galilee was on the razor's edge of all of this, of poverty and unrest and exploitation. And I think when you, when you understand the, the setting in Galilee, the imperial economy, the cultural pressures, there on the periphery of empire, you think of Jesus' ministry, which begins as John was arrested. He was arrested and killed by Herod Antipas, who had his tax collectors up there in Galilee, you know, bilking the farmers, exploiting the fishing trade, generating revenue for his lavish lifestyle. Jesus goes all the way up there to this little town to call his disciples. And the first set of disciples are these four fishermen. The next one called was a tax collector, Levi. That's his Jewish name. His Greek name was Matthew. 
He was based out of Capernaum. They knew this guy. And you begin to see that he wasn't just starting some new Jewish sect or teaching about how to get into heaven when you die. He was messing with the way they've organized their life. He was organizing a movement to challenge the corrupt political and religious leaders of his time, to challenge the economy, the social systems of empire that reduce everything to a value and then take the value and, and send it back to, to Rome, to the rich and, top, and powerful at the top of the pyramid, exploiting the, the common people who live on the margins, on the periphery, in places like Galilee, which is exactly where Jesus goes to do his ministry and to call his disciples. And the first people he calls are these people who have just been so disenfranchised by empire, these fishermen. And he calls them right alongside the tax collector who was doing the exploitation. It's wild. When you know this setting and kind of the history of it, the economics, the social pressures, you start to see Christ's mission was not simply religious. Jesus was bringing about the fundamental um, reordering of all socioeconomic relationships. He's going to give them a whole new way to organize their common life together. And he's going to establish it first among the 12. And they're going to extend it to everyone. The biblical concept for this, um, these new like social economic relationships, the, the concept was the kingdom of God. That's the reign and rule of God, the reordering under, under God's plan for the world. And this is embedded in our text. It begins, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news, gospel, evangelion of God. And he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The time has come. There, there are actually two words, Greek words for time. There's chronos and kairos. And chronos is like chronology, clock time. He doesn't use that word. He uses kairos, which is about the character of time. Like, not what time it is, but what the time is like. That's kairos. This decisive moment, holy moment has come. Why? He says, because the kingdom of God, the government of God has come near. The reign and rule of God is showing up in Christ, through Christ. God means to rule the world again in a way that hasn't been able to rule in a, in a long time. So the kingdom of God is drawn near. It's arriving. It's coming near. And the way to be part of this new kingdom is repent and believe in this good news. We talk about this word a lot, uh, repent. In Greek, it's the word metanoia, um, which back then was not a religious word. Repent it sounds like a religious word to us, but um, it wasn't for them. Metanoia wasn't a religious word. You were most likely taught that to repent means to feel really bad for the bad things that you've done and promise never to do them again. Who, who grew up thinking that's pretty much what repent means? Okay, that's totally not what the, the word means in, in Greek. Metanoia means change your direction and allegiance in life. If you're going the wrong way and need a course correction, you need to metanoia. It just means turn around and go another way. Find a new direction for your entire life and being. I've heard it called a radical break with business as usual. That's pretty good. And it implies a change in allegiance, too, in terms of who's leading a life. There's this famous... Um, first century Jewish 
aristocrat named Josephus. Anybody heard of Josephus? He, he was um, a Roman sympathizer, a Jew, living in Jerusalem. Um, about like at, He was born right after Christ um, was killed. And he, was, um, he lived through the bloody wars, Jewish wars with, with Rome, and wrote, he wrote a bunch. He wrote an autobiography. That's why we know about him. And he told about this experience he had in A.D. 66. So this is like four years before Jerusalem is sacked and, and the Jews are dispersed. There was this uprising in Galilee, of course. And Josephus, this young military commander, was sent up there to Galilee to stop these hot-headed Galileans from dragging them into a war with Rome. And, he, and Josephus goes to meet with the leader of this rebellion in Galilee to try to convince him to, to back down. And the argument he made... Um, involved this Greek phrase. He said, metanoiesin kaipistos imoigenestesai, that translated into English is, repent and believe in me. That's what he says to this rebellion, rebellious leader, right? It's the same language that Jesus used to describe participation in the kingdom of God. When Josephus goes to this rebel leader and says, you know, repent and believe in me. He wasn't calling him to have a religious conversion, you know, to stop sinning and, and accept whatever and so they can go to heaven when he dies. He, he was saying, you need to change the direction you're pursuing in your life. Stop chasing this revolution. Repent, turn around, change direction, believe in me, follow a new course that I'm describing for you. That's, that's how the phrase was used in their time. It wasn't about a religious conversion. It was about changing direction in life, one's entire life, comprehensively. And then we're told, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now this phrase, I will send you out to fish for people, like this is a, this is a well-known thing, Right? And, um, or you may have learned it, I will make you fishers of men. I think I had a Sunday school song about fishers of men. Um, in Greek, the, the, the phrase is halios um, anthropon. It just means um, fish, fish person, fish human. So it's, it, it's a noun. It's not an action. It's a noun. I will make you fishers of people. That's, that's what it means. And I think it might be one of the most misunderstood phrases in the entire New Testament. I mean, I'm guessing most, if not all of us, understood fishers of men, fish, fishers for people, as saying that these guys are they're going to stop fishing for fish and start fishing for converts to Christianity. That's what, that's what most of us probably grew up thinking, fishers for people. And this is the most common reading of the text. There's, there is a different reading, though. And, and I think there's a problem with that common understanding. And the problem is that this idea of fishing for people, he doesn't just pluck this from thin air. It comes from the Old Testament prophets. This is an idea the prophets talked about a lot. And Jesus, you know, he quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, like 80 sometimes. Half of that time he's quoting the prophets He's heavily influenced by their, I mean, most scholars agree Jesus understood himself and his ministry to be continuing the ministry of the prophets. That's, that's who John was. He picks up when John dies. You know, this is how he saw himself. He quoted them. He 
um, emulated them, he embodied that same prophetic spirit. And this concept of fishing for people comes directly from the Hebrew prophets. But when they talk about fishing for people, the people they were catching weren't just converts to, to Judaism. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the image of fishing for people was not about saving souls. Fishing for people was about catching the rich and the powerful in their injustice. When the Hebrew prophets talked about fishing for people, the people they were going to catch were not just like people who need to be converted. It was all people, and especially the people who always got away under the current regimes, the rich and the powerful who had corrupted Jewish society and exploited the poor. And Jesus selects this image of fishing for people intentionally from the prophets who had used it in a very particular way. And I, I think it's just it's logical to think he's using it in a, in a similar way. So for instance, let me read a few of these. Jeremiah 16 says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch the people. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. My eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their, their wickedness. So here the, the prophet is saying that um, God is promising to send fishers to fish for people not to have a religious conversion. They're fishing for the rich and the powerful and the unjust who are ruining their, their world. Let's look at Amos chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That's a great put down if you're looking for a new one. You can just use that. <laughs> cows of Bashan. On, on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands after you've crushed the poor and, and, and oppressed the needy, bring me that we may drink. Like, bring me another drink, Right? And the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. It's this prophetic word to those on the mountain of Samaria. The Mount of Samaria was, you know, it was the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had Jerusalem. The, in the north, they had Mount Gerizim, where their temple was in the northern kingdom. It was their Jerusalem. This is the center of power in the north where the people were basking in riches, oppressing the poor, and then saying, you know, fill, fill up another, fill my cup, you know, bring me another drink. They will be caught like fish, the prophet says, taken away on fish hooks. One more, Ezekiel 29. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. So again, this is about empire. That's what Pharaoh represents. The, the people who, the leaders who think they've created the world, you know, in their image. The Lord will go fishing for them, put hooks in their jaws, and catch not only kings and presidents, but catch all the little fish who stick to their scales, the enablers who enrich themselves by assisting the powerful as they exploit the people. This is the metaphor Jesus uses from the prophets when he says, I will make you fishers of pe people. It's, it's 
rooted in the Hebrew Bible and the prophets who used it often. And the people they are catching this time, it's not just the converts, not just the poor, although they're, they're part of it. But they're going to catch finally these powerful leaders, the elite classes who perpetuate systems of injustice. Jesus borrows this image from the Hebrew prophets. And he, he calls his disciples and says, I'll teach you how to fish for people. And just like the prophets said, the people that you're going to catch are, are not just the common folk, but the rulers of the kingdoms of this world who always get away with it and who corrupt our societies and pit us against each other and exploit those on the margins. And he borrows this, this image from from Jeremiah, where it's a, a symbol of Yahweh saying, I, I will censure Israel's corrupt leaders. And from the prophet Amos, who says, the rich will be carried away on fish hooks. And from the prophet Ezekiel, where the powerful leaders will find fish hooks in their jaws. And, and so Jesus is not inviting his disciples to start evangelistic crusades when he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus is inviting common people to join him in a struggle to overturn the existing order of power and privilege for a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is drawing near. It's pretty wild. I mean, back then and today, Jesus requires much more than just you know, mental assent to a bunch of truth claims about Jesus' identity that gets you into heaven when you die. His call is to participate in a new kingdom. It's, it's a fundamental reordering of the world and its socioeconomic relationships and practices. This is not a call to escape the world. It's a call to transform it by catching everyone in the net, especially the rich and the, the, the rulers and the powerful elites who perpetuate justice. They will be caught in the nets of the kingdom. Everyone caught on fish hooks and thereby liberating somehow those at the margin. I love this reading of it. I mean, you can understand it either way. You, you don't have to buy this, but I think it makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider that Jesus himself was always drawing on the prophets quoted them all the time. He uses their imagery in his teaching. When you consider, it also explains why he didn't do big evangelistic crusades. It's not, he just walked around, you know, liberating people from binding the strong man, Mark says, setting people free. And when you consider, it, it explains why his disciples immediately thought, oh, he's doing a coup. He's doing a, he's doing a revolution, Right? He was promising, and think of Mary's song. He's going to bring down the rich and raise up the, the lowly. It's just that he's going to do this through, through peacemaking and self-sacrificial love. And then finally, it fits with why Jesus didn't stay out there on the periphery, on the margins, saving souls for heaven, you know, staying out of the way of the powerful down in Jerusalem. I thought that's all he was doing. He would have never gone to Jerusalem. He just stayed in, in the Galilee. But he didn't. He eventually confronted the powerful and caught them on fish hooks, right? It's sort of wild then, if you read it this way, to think about how much damage has been done to people 
who believed they, were, they had been made fishers of men. Anybody feel that? Anybody having trauma thoughts about church camp right now? You know? Jesus' call, at least part of its meaning, um, was not the primary meaning, not the meaning of, of personal evangelism like we think. He said, follow me. I will make you fishers for people. He's saying, join me in this struggle um, to overturn the existing order, power and privilege, to, to reorder our corrupt socioeconomic relationships and practice, to liberate those who suffer exploitation, and to catch, finally, these corrupt leaders and carry them away on fish hooks. In the ancient world, there was this phrase. It, was, it came from the pagan world, but everybody knew it at the time. The phrase was, um, to be caught in the nets of the gods. This is a common parlance. This was not a good thing. When you got caught in the nets of the gods, it's not like they had you know, cast divine favor on you. You were in trouble. It meant they had hooked you. You, you had been caught in some scheme or some injustice or, or some, you'd done something wrong. It's a very similar image to what Jesus is using here. And his, his call to his first disciples is really, by our tradition, extended to all of us. Like we've all been invited to become fishers of people, which is not going out proselytizing. But in a sense, our task is first to be um, caught in the nets of the kingdom of God ourselves. Catch us first. In Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching, he says, the kingdom of God is like a net thrown into the sea, and it catches everyone, not just converts, not just people who believe in Christ. It catches everyone, the good and the bad, it says. And they're drawn to the shore, and then there is this judgment that happens where they, they sort, sort out stuff. And, and our task is, is not to avoid judgment. Those who know how to repent welcome judgment. Judgment just means I'm now aware of something. I need to repent. I need to turn from that and go a different way. This is discipleship. This is maturity. This is growing up. This is relationships. Oh, I, I did this wrong. I'm going to confess that. I'm going to stop doing I'm going to go this way. I'll change direction here. And, and judgment, everybody gets caught in the net, and then the judgment, for those who will repent, it's, it's a kind of grace. To see our own participation in systems of exploitation and violence. This is a grace. To confess our own selfishness, our brokenness, our sinfulness, it's a grace. To allow ourselves to be caught in the nets of the kingdom of God and to then, when we can see stuff, repent, metanoia, change direction. It's a grace. To experience a radical break with business is, is usual. To, in a sense, follow Jesus as Lord and pursue as Jesus said it, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's after. And then to extend that reign and rule to others by caring for the, the, the least 
of these, the, the last, the lowly, by following Jesus to, in living in solidarity with those who are on the margins, the left out, the left behind, and by fishing for the unjust rulers of the kingdoms of this world, catching them in the nets too, so that they can experience the same judgment that we do, and they have a chance to repent. And if not, that's their, that's their business. But once they're caught, then they, they can no longer exploit the weak and steal away their chance at shalom, at, at wholeness and flourishing. Isn't that wild? Such a rich metaphor when you understand it in its context. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God, it's here. It's happening. The, the moment has come. Draw near to it. Get caught in the nets. And, and then when the judgment comes, repent and believe in, in me. Turn around, change your lives, and trust me for your direction. That's the invitation. And it's good news. It's not us. We're, we're, we're safe over here, and everybody else is going to get judged. Everybody gets drawn in the nets and judged. And then it's grace from there on out. How do I need to change? How can I repent? And when I do, come more alive, become more and more immersed in this new way of ordering the world that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Oh God, as we draw to mind this image of being caught in the nets of the kingdom, let's pray that you would let it kind of work on us that we would entertain this idea that in Fishers of Men, it's not so much about personal evangelism, but about just being caught up in the kingdom of God, government of God, the reign and rule of your spirit in this world. And this is what we want. And we'll leave the judgment to you. We'll allow you to speak to us about our lives and especially that we'll participate in calling the leaders of the kingdoms of this world into, into question. Help us to do this um, as a community wisely and with grace. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would. And we're going to receive communion. The way we do this at Redemption is we're just released row by row. You come forward, you'll be offered a plate with bread and with um, a cup of juice. And you can just take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive it. As you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can um, respond, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. We do this because on Jesus' last night with his disciples, he did this. He had them share in the same loaf and the same cup. And he, he redefined this little feast that they did. It was a Jewish feast. He said, every time you gather, I want you to eat from this bread and a common loaf and this common cup. And it joins you in one family, but it also is symbolically you taking my life into your life. It's like, I want you to feast on my life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. He said, every time you gather, do this symbolically and remember who you are. Remember who you're your king is. And so this is why we receive communion and why we 
invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. And um, so before we do, let's, let's pray a blessing upon this meal. No, God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Will you come?